Father, I pray that everyone in this room would feel to the very core and foundation of their souls the truth of what we just sang, what we're just about to hear Peter say. Lord, we thank you. There is nowhere else that we could go. And we don't need to go anywhere else because you have given us your word. Would we love it today? Would we feed on it today? Would it be our life in Christ? Amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This morning we're going to look at verses 66 through 71. So John chapter 6, verses 66 through 71. Yesterday morning, apparently, a nurse came in to see Garrett and Hannah, and she asked them how they were doing. And more specifically, she asked them how they could be so joyful after the week that they had. And Hannah was able to tell her the gospel about a hope that goes beyond this world, about a hope that, that puts everything into the right perspective, how we are able to see more about this world through Christ than just this one single part that can last a few hours or months. Or at most, it can only last a hundred years or so. Christians can see more. We can have hope in the hardest days because we have God. God was a good father this week. It was hard, of course. I mean, it was so hard. But God answered our prayers. God took something dark and He made light in it. He took something that would seem hopeless and He made something beautiful out of it. I was struck this week about how there is always hope to be found when you are with your Father. Always. This world, it takes beautiful things and it makes beautiful things awful. It, it can take beautiful things and it can twist them. It can break them. It can destroy them. I mean, don't we already know that this world is just cursed? We feel the weight of it. But God, He's able to redeem those things. He, he, he's able to, to, to take those things and make them beautiful. But we have to be heavenly minded in the way that we see this world. And that's what understanding Jesus in John 6 will do for you. It, it will give you such strength. It will give you such a firm foundation to stand on. You know, we all, just, we all just stood up here together and, and we proclaimed together that we can sing through days of sorrow because all will be well. But the question that we struggle with is, how can we sing that when the things around us seem anything but well? How can we sing that when the things around us seem, frankly, to be going awfully? It, it, it doesn't make sense to anyone 
who hasn't understood what John is saying here in John chapter 6. If you're unable to see that, yes, this world is fallen, but that the purpose of this world is to direct us away from trust in ourselves and towards trust in the Creator. If you cannot see what we read together in Ephesians chapter 1, that God has a plan and a purpose for this world that He has created, that all things would be united under Christ. If you're unable to see that, if you're unable to trust in our Father, that He is bringing the world that we need instead of necessarily the world that we want, then you'll never understand how God's people could sing through days of sorrow. Samuel Rutherford wrote, Our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. In fact, that first night's welcome will be so much more sweet because we have lived in this fallen world. But here's the thing. Singing through days of sorrow, that's a hard attitude to swallow sometimes. You know, it's just at this moment that many people who are willing to follow Jesus at first they're willing to follow Jesus at first. It's just at this moment that they're going to decide to leave. Because your whole way of seeing the world has to change if you're, if you're going to actually listen to what Jesus is saying and then trust Him. Because either A, people are going to say that Jesus said a lot of things He didn't say in order to make them feel more comfortable with the world, or B, people are going to actually hear what Jesus is saying and they're not going to be able to stomach it. Let's read what happens here in John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet... One of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So, first this morning, I want us to talk about this. Let's talk about how many will turn back. First this morning, many will turn back. What happened here? Let's make sure that we see the flow of the story. If you've been following along with us, you should see this. Jesus came back from Samaria way back in the beginning of chapter 5, and He began to do signs and He began to teach. Those signs that He did, they attracted a lot of attention from these Jews, these Jews who were already hyped up about the Messiah coming. They were already looking for the Messiah to be here. They were also, by the way, really hyped up about the idea that the Messiah would save them from the relationship they had with Rome. So they're all hyped up about all of that. 
So Jesus comes and he starts doing these signs and huge crowds started following Jesus. They followed him wherever he went. When he tried to get away, guess what? They followed him. They got more excited about him. They wanted to go ahead and declare him king and get on with taking Israel for themselves with Jesus as their king. That's how excited they were about this. It was all building. It was this massive wave that sort of happened between chapters 5 and 6. But then Jesus did not go along with that. He started talking about something else instead. He started saying that he knew God. In fact, he said that God was his father. If you remember the Jews at this time, you did not say that God was my father. Nobody did that. You might say corporately together when you're worshiping God as our Father. But nobody said, God's my Father. And then along comes Jesus, and Jesus goes, no, guys, God is my Father. I am His Son. I know God. In fact, I know God so well, I know His plan. And His plan is something different than you guys are all thinking. It is something far more spiritual. Something that goes way beyond these simple years in Israel. His plan is something that stretched towards a kingdom that was so much more vast than the borders of Israel, and it would last infinitely longer than the empire of Rome. God's plan, though, was built around the fact that people can't earn eternal life for themselves. People can't, no matter what they do, no matter who they were, they cannot enter into God's eternal kingdom that he was already planning to bring. You know, they might be planning their own thing, but God has his own kingdom. He's planning. And Jesus tells them, you can't enter this kingdom based on the things that you do or based on who you were. And that did not fit at all all with how these Jews saw the world or how they saw themselves. They did not like that. But, Jesus tells them, like when God fed them manna after Egypt, when God brought them out of Egypt, they must be fed entirely by God to come into the kingdom that God has planned. But, like many before them, and so many since, like most of us, at one point or another, these Jews had already decided they knew what God should do for them. They already knew what God should do for them. He just needed to show up and do it. Have you ever felt like that? I'm sure you have. They had their own plans. They had plans, and you know how these plans, they usually work? Usually the plans that we make, that we go, hey God, this is what needs to be done, could you just show up and do it? Usually they're plans that fit to, you know, our desires, (laughs) coincidentally. They're plans that usually fit to our strengths, not our weaknesses, again, coincidentally. They're usually plans that fit us. Perfectly, we think. And so we say, hey God, just this is what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be this because this is what I, 
I want, this is what I need. And that's, that's what the Jews had done here. They already had their plans that fit with their desires and fit with what they wanted. And so when God actually comes along and says, I've got a different plan. Guess what? We're not doing that at all. There's a clash. There's a conflict. Guys, when that happens in your life, when God shows up and goes, hey, guess what? That, no, that's not the plan at all. There, there's going to be a clash and there's going to be a conflict of wills. Can I give you a, a, a piece of encouragement? You're not going to win that. Your will is not strong enough. So the sooner, the sooner that you submit your will to God, the better the happier. That's how we find joy. These people, they were realizing that Jesus' understanding of being the Messiah wasn't at all what they were expecting. And frankly, they weren't really interested in the direction that Jesus was going. They had more earthly concerns. They had more immediate concerns. But what about Rome, Jesus? What about our, our food today? We really liked how you fed us yesterday. We don't want to hear this talk that you, you, what you're saying here about life and eternal life and, and, and whatever. And so they left. It's a poignant moment. I mean, as readers, we're sitting here watching this massive crowd leave and we know that they took their temporary desires over God's eternal hope. They were so short-sighted in this moment. See, you and I, we're able to step back and go, we know what you guys were saying no to. But in the moment, they didn't. And how often is that the case for us? In the heat of the moment, we become so short-sighted that we forget what we may be saying no to down the road. To God's greater plan. So guys, let's learn something here. Coming to God, finding the kind of hope that stands against every trial, it demands humility. Humility. Coming to Jesus and trusting what He says takes a whole lot of humility so that you don't walk away when it gets difficult. You don't walk away when Jesus' words don't line up with what you want or what you expect So many people do that. So many people fall into the exact same trap that the Jews have fallen into, fallen into here in John 6. They get caught up in the earthly and they forget that what Jesus is most concerned about is that you come through this life righteous in the sight of God. You come through this life cleansed washed in the blood of the Lamb, you come through this life, and when you come before God, that you would be able to say, though my sins were as scarlet, they are as white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they are like wool. That we truly could come 
together with God and reason. That's what Jesus wants to bring to these people. He knows how much more important that is than anything else. We can't walk away when Jesus' words don't line up with what we want or expect. And you know, there's easy targets, I think, if we were talking about application here. There's easy cultural targets this morning for when we talk about that. You know, God's words on homosexuality, God's words on gender, God's words on sanctity of life. We know so many walk away from God over those things because He's clear in Scripture on them. But you know what I've seen, though, more of? Many people don't walk away from God over things like that. Many people who are in the church don't. They don't walk away from God over things like that. In fact, I know people who would say that they stand with God on those cultural things, but they've actually walked away from God on many other things. They actually walked away from God a long time before they got to those topics. They, they walked away from God over dreams of theirs that didn't come true. They walked away from God because they didn't want to accept that being part of the church takes sacrifice and means that people will hurt you. They walked away from God because they chose to feed their hearts and their minds with the food that the world offered instead of feeding on Christ in God's own word. They walked away from God because they were tired and they were trying to stay with God on their own power. They didn't come to Christ for their rest. You see, they walked away from God because of these things, and then perhaps they found an excuse later to legitimize it. Or perhaps they didn't. There's so many in the church who come every Sunday who have still walked away from God years ago in their hearts. Because they had this same experience. God did not show up and fulfill their plan. And they were not willing to accept God's plan. God did not show up and share their priorities for their life. And they were not willing to give up their priorities for the priority that God set in front of them, which was Christ above all. And so by the time they got to the big cultural issues, it was not hard for them to walk away over them because they walked away so long ago. It doesn't make sense that the Jews would walk away from Jesus here. You want to say, guys, don't do that. Do you know what you're doing? Guys, he actually is the Christ. No, no, he is actually the Messiah. Don't, don't walk away from him. But it doesn't make sense when we walk away either. But it happens. Trust is the most difficult word in the Bible for so many. Because trust, I've said it before, trust is a word that has to have feet, doesn't it? Trust is a word that demands that you do something. When you say that you trust someone, 
you follow it up by doing what? Actually trusting them in some way, shape, or form. I'm being tested in that right now. I love my oldest daughter. And I trust her. And I've had no problem saying, you know, for the last couple of years, I trust you. She turns 16 in a couple weeks, though. She wants to get her driver's license. And all of a sudden, that word trust, you see, it takes on a whole new meaning, right? Because I can say I trust you, but there's something totally different between going, oh, I trust you, honey, and going, here are some keys, and I don't, I'm going to stay in this house, and you're going to go out there. I trust you. Do you see the difference between saying trusting and actually trusting? Trusting in Scripture is one of the hardest words for most Christians. We hate I don't think that's too strong of a word. We hate sometimes the idea of trusting somebody else with what is so important to us. And so, when we've already come up with the plan that we think should work, You know what happens when you come up with a plan that you think works? You get invested in it. You know, sometimes I think it's wise, and, and, and I do this sometimes, I, I can get invested in plans that I come up with, so sometimes I wait to come up with the plan until I'm talking to the person that I have to plan with. Because if I come already invested, when they come back, I'm like, no, no, I've made a plan. It'll work. Sarah and I talk, and, and I've learned, you know, I should probably plan it with her, instead of making the plan and coming to her, because then we end up arguing about whose plan is better. Because we get invested in our plan. We do the same thing with God. God, I already know what should happen this week. I already know what should happen in this situation. I've already seen how it can all work out. Can you just, can you just do that for me? Trust is the most difficult word in the Bible for so many. And it was impossible for these Jews in this moment because they wanted a Messiah who would show up and who would give them the world right then and right there. They wanted a Messiah who would show up and would encourage them in the fact that, yes, you can work for your righteousness. And instead, Jesus said, no, you can't. <laughs> if God doesn't bring you to himself, you have no hope. You can't do it. They wanted someone, a Messiah, who would come and give them a kingdom then. And he wouldn't. But when it comes to trust, Peter is about to raise a really good point. So many went away. Secondly, this morning, where else can we go? So once these turn to leave, Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks them, hey, do you guys want to go away as well? And here comes Peter. This is why we love Peter. He's willing to speak. Sometimes you just need somebody who's willing to just open their mouth and say whatever. It just, that's Peter. 
He speaks from the heart. Sometimes he gets it very wrong, but other times he nails it. Now, here's the thing. As you're reading through this, we can't be entirely sure what Peter's motivations are here. There's a case to be made that that Peter is saying this because he wants to encourage Jesus that the disciples aren't going to leave him either. Perhaps he thinks that Jesus will be discouraged that all these people left. He sees all the crowds going away, and Peter's supposed to be, hey, we're not, we're not going to abandon you, Jesus. We still believe. After all, that, that's how we think as humans so often, isn't it? If you're being successful, there are going to be numerical results. I mean, even Reformed folk, we get caught up in this. I mean, we know that numbers aren't everything, but our heroes are pretty much all men who drew or draw giant crowds. We can't help but think they must be doing something right. And we want to be a part of that. But make sure that you see here, there's no comment from Jesus about these people that left. He doesn't even talk about trying to get them back. He doesn't say anything about them. He doesn't try and convince them to return. He'd seen their hearts. He'd seen their reason for leaving. He let them go. If this is what Peter's thinking, John tells us that Peter missed the point when we're told that Jesus already knew that one of these men Peter was speaking for was going to betray him. Jesus did not need encouragement here. John has already told us that Jesus knows what's in man. So he certainly would already know what's in the hearts of these men. There's nothing Peter could tell him that would change that. I'm going to come back to that here in a minute. But the numbers are not going to be what sways Jesus here. Perhaps, though, Peter's not trying to encourage Jesus. Perhaps he's just answering the the question as best he can. We don't know for sure. But either way, John tells us this conversation because Peter has hit the nail right on the head with his response. Peter's not denying, guys, Peter's not denying that what Jesus said was hard to hear. or hard to accept. He's not denying those things. In fact, I think by the way that he phrases this answer, he's implicitly agreeing with the, con- the idea that what Jesus said was both hard to hear and hard to accept. Because he doesn't go, oh, no, no, Jesus, we got it totally. And we loved it. It's, it's, it's what we were thinking already. It fits perfectly with what I wanted. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, he doesn't respond that way. We know that Peter doesn't fully get it yet because he's going to have major problems. He's going to have major problems when he does finally realize that what Jesus is planning on doing is going to the cross. He's going to have major issues with that later. So we know he doesn't fully get it yet. So he's not saying that this is easy for him to accept. If we can get this right, though, if we can get this right like Peter got it right here, we're still going to be tested on it. Because it's not that Peter has fully understood everything Jesus said, but he has done something far, 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 far more important than understanding everything that Jesus said here. He has understood who Jesus is. And he's accepted that. Let's think about the difference between those two things. 
He may not have fully understood what Jesus said, but Peter has accepted who Jesus is. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then does he say, and we love what we're hearing from you. (laughs) We love these words. They make sense to us. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is profound trust. Peter is saying, it's you, Jesus. We know that much for certain. We know for certain it's you. Uh, Peter's still going to need to be corrected by Jesus, harshly even. He is still going to need to be transformed by Jesus and by the Spirit. But he has this right. He knows there is not another option for God's truth than Jesus. He knows that much. Trust is such a powerful word. And here Peter lays it all bare. When it comes down to it, everything else is stripped away. And guys, at some point, everything else will be stripped away. The things that we want to trust in will be taken from us. Everything will be stripped away. Peter's response here is at the very core of our lives. Let's think about it for a minute. Where else could we go? Could we look to ourselves? Could we say, I will get through this. I will make something of this. I will follow my heart. I will follow my instincts. Ultimately, I can't trust anyone but myself, and I will get through this. Could we look to our hard work? I can make a safe place through my work, through my efforts. I can make a safe place for myself and for those that I love. I can provide. Could we look to our reason? I have the ability to rationally understand this and think through this. There is some way that this will make sense and I will find it out. Can we trust in our emotions and our feelings? I don't know that I can logically understand this, but I know that I can make it through it if I just trust my feelings, if I just trust how, if I just go with what I'm feeling in this moment. Maybe we could just look to escape in general. I don't know, we might say. And it's just too hard to figure it out. I don't have the capacity to try and understand. So instead, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do what feels good in this moment. I'm going to eat what makes me feel good. I'm going to drink what makes me feel good. I'm going to spend time with the people that make me feel good. I'm just going to not worry about it. Could we look to others? My dad will rescue me. My boss will show up and help me. Maybe my neighbors could. They certainly could if they wanted to. The church should help me. There's plenty of places that we look for hope. But what Peter says here 
is probably the best single sentence summary of the book of Ecclesiastes ever. I would encourage you, read the book of Ecclesiastes today. King Solomon explored every avenue of life. He explored everything that life had to offer, looking for meaning in it. And he wrote about it. He tried wisdom and discovered it was ultimately vanity. It was meaningless. It didn't provide what he longed for. Then in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he tried pleasure. Then after pleasure, he tried work and building great things. Ultimately, as he explored all these different avenues, he saw that every single thing ended in exactly the same way. You still died. You still returned to dust. It was vanity. It was meaningless. He considered whether you have a family that supports you and realized it doesn't matter ultimately if you do or not. They'll die too. He examines life from all different directions. And Solomon ends with this. He says, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon pins it down to the, the final point. The thing that matters, the only thing that's really going to matter is your relationship to God. Because everything that happens here on earth, every single part of this part of your life, culminates. This is what Solomon is saying. Your work, your family, your pleasure, your choices, your everything that you pursue here on life, Solomon is saying it all culminates in one thing. You stand before God and every part of your heart is revealed to Him. And Peter's reply here to Jesus, it is built on this same wisdom that Solomon spent a lifetime coming to. Where else can we go? If all of life culminates in this one point that everything about you is going to be laid bare before God, all your secrets are going to be brought before Him, Where else can you go in that moment? He has the words of eternal life. He has what matters. He has what will bring us through this part of our life into that part of our life. He has what will bring you to that culminating moment in front of God where every part of your life, all of those efforts that you've made, He brings you in. Whoa. He brings you there in that moment. And it is only Christ who can bring you through that moment into God's eternal kingdom. Peter Nails it. Where else can you go?
He has the words of eternal life. You can either fight against that reality for your whole life and be miserable. And many choose that. Many choose to fight against that reality and go, whether, whether you say it or not in your heart, you go, I don't want to accept that that's true. No, there has to be something to this way. No, there has to be something to that way. Listen to Solomon. Listen to Solomon. Before Christ came, he brings it to a head and says, no, you're going to stand before God and trust me. I had the opportunity to try all these ways. No. And then listen to Peter. Listen to Peter say he's looking at the one. Say, where else could I go? You can fight against that for your whole life and be miserable. Or you can joyfully see that here's the thing, guys. (laughs) Where else can you go? Nowhere. But here's the good news. You don't need to go anywhere else. Jesus is joyfully offering exactly what we need. He came for the whole purpose of bringing us into that eternal kingdom. He's not stingy. He's not withholding it. His whole purpose was to come and bring us into that kingdom. So we can't go anywhere else. Our final point this morning is this. God's truth never changes. God's truth never changes. Spurgeon calls Peter's answer a grand answer. There's a magnificence about it which I cannot expect to bring out to the fullest. That's true. But what about Jesus' response here to Peter? Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So even with Peter's declaration here, one of the twelve is going to betray Jesus. One of the twelve is not just going to walk away from him. No, even worse, Judas is going to stay with him until the moment that he can betray him for earthly things. The crowds have left him. Even his most intimate disciples aren't fully loyal to Jesus. But let's make sure that we see this. Jesus doesn't ever change his message. He comes to his people. He tells them how he sees things, how he sees the world, what he and the Father and the Spirit have planned to do, what their intentions are. The way that Jesus sees the world is the way to see the world, right? He made it, it's his. All things are going to be put under His feet. He's come from the Father, and He and the Father and the Spirit, they have planned out what they're going to do with the world. So Jesus comes and He tells the crowds, He tells His own people what He's going to do and how to see the world. And when the crowds reject Him over that message, does He change it? No. He doesn't. 
He turns to his disciples, and we hear the right response from his disciples. There's no one else that they could go to. But even then, one of them is going to betray him. Will Jesus change his message? Will he change his message so that he could maybe keep Judas there? Will he change his message so that maybe he could keep the crowds with him? Not a bit of it. And be thankful that he doesn't. We're tempted to, aren't we? We're tempted to soften our message. Or we're tempted to harden our message. It all depends on who we're talking to. (laughs) It all depends on who is listening to us. And how they're responding. But here's the thing. Jesus truly has the words of eternal life. The only words. And it doesn't matter how you feel about those words. It doesn't matter how you and I respond to those words. It doesn't matter, frankly, how anyone responds to those words. They will not change. God will not change those words because if God were to change those words, then no one would be saved. He's telling us this is the way to his eternal kingdom. And it will not change. The only thing that can save us. So let's thank him this morning that he does not change the message when people walk away. And guys, we can't change it either. No matter who walks away. I think that's one of the biggest struggles is when you have someone that you love and care about deeply who will not accept the message of Jesus. And many people are tempted to twist, to change the words of Jesus because of the relationship that they have with somebody that they love. I get that. But we can't. Make sure you see the poignancy of this moment for Jesus. These are his people. You and I could not love anybody with a depth of love that God had for his people that he chose as his own possession. Do you want to see a testimony to the love that Jesus had for these people? Read the Old Testament. These are the people. These are the people who turned away from him over and over again and he brought them back and he had mercy on them and he loved them. We're watching God engage with his people whom he loved and who rejected him and walked away from him. He did not change his words. He did not change the gospel. I know that it can be a great temptation to us. I would encourage you, see Jesus here, your Savior, and realize you can't change the gospel. 
Not if you truly want to see people in that kingdom that he's bringing. He doesn't change the message when things get hard. And the message just doesn't change. The message simply is. The words simply are. And there is so much hope in these words. There's hope that can shape you. There's hope that can get you through this part of life. There are words that can redeem this part of your life. They can make it beautiful. They can make it joyful even on the dark days. Because you know what God is doing. You know what He is intending. You know what His plan is. This is what Jesus offers And there's no one else that you can go to. Here's the question I want to end with. Christian, if you understand what Jesus is giving us, why would you want to go anywhere else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We praise you for the hope Lord, as we see this connection here of Solomon exploring every avenue of life and then coming to the conclusion from it that what ultimately matters is that at the end of our lives we are standing before you. Everything is laid bare. The sum of our lives will be judged. And if we do not have your perfect righteousness on that day, we cannot be with you for all eternity. And so, Father, we thank you that Jesus came. He truly did have the words of eternal life, that, Lord, in him and through his sacrifice on the cross, he gives us the perfect righteousness we need. Lord, I pray that as we hear Peter today in our hearts, we resound with the same cry, where else can we go? Jesus is our only hope. But Lord, I also pray beyond that, that when we come to Jesus this way, that we see how that hope transcends every single part of our lives, that we can say all must be well and sing through days of sorrow. Because we have a hope that what this world is doing is preparing us. That this momentary affliction it cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory that you have prepared for us in Christ Jesus. We praise you for that in his name. Amen.